certainly have fears that there is a serial killer at loose in Perth. Sarah Spears, Jane Rimmer, Kira Glennon. And every time you saw a young girl walking by, you think, oh, God, is she going to be the next victim? Now, one man stands accused. If police are right and Edwards is the Claremont serial killer, he's been hiding in plain sight for 20 years. The details of this trial have been equally shocking and intriguing. And for many of you listening to this podcast, it's uh, obviously left you with uh, sometimes more questions than answers. I'm Natalie Bongiolo, and in this bonus episode, we have criminal lawyer Damien Cripps and the West Australian's legal affairs editor, Tim Clark. And they are going to try to answer some of the hundreds of questions that you've emailed us over the past few weeks. So let's get started. Thanks for both coming in. Let's get started with question one, which is from Alicia and Scott Smith. And they are wondering if we will find out who the defence will call as witnesses for Mr Edwards. Uh, She says, I'm also somewhat confused as it was reported sometime over the last few years since Mr Edwards' arrest and charges that his family and friends supposedly support him, but they haven't appeared in court. Have they been told to keep away? Um, Well, I can answer that quite quickly. No, they haven't. Um, Mr Edwards' mum and dad have been there pretty regularly, um, certainly in the last couple of weeks. Um, They sit together. So the court is basically configured a bit like a bride and groom at a wedding. So the um, the victim's families are on one side of the court and then Mr Edwards's families are on the other side of the court and there's reserved seating for both um, towards the front of the public gallery. Um, and Mr, Mr and Mrs Edwards um, have been there very regularly, um, taking um, very um, keen interest in what's going on. And um, there's been some non-verbal interaction yes. between Mr Edwards and his parents as he's been entering and exiting the um, the dock. So, um, Does he look to his parents yes, during he, the course of the day? Not during the course of the day, but uh, as he's exiting to go down to the custody area in Court 72, he basically walks straight towards them, sort of down the dock before he goes under um, into the sort of the custody suite below. Um, and during those sort of little walks, um, he has been, you know, raising his eyebrows, smiling, gesturing facially towards them. So um, so there is there is obviously still a measure of family support there. Yeah. And Damien, this question of whether the defence or, or will you find out who the defence is calling as a witness for Mr Edwards? Um, the defence won't be required to um, give a list of who their witnesses are to the public or anything. But perhaps it's a case that um, internally the court and, um, and the prosecution might have an idea of who the defence will call. But ultimately, it's not the position that um, anyone will find out mm. until the defence commence their case. Um, what I, I did want to say, Nat, that, that, that um, these questions are all fantastic questions and the people of the world and West Australia have put their minds to some great ideas about um, what to what they're trying to find out. Yeah. I just I don't just um, single-handedly come up with these answers. I rely on a lot of people around me to try to help as yeah. well. And I want to say thanks to those people that have helped me over the course of um, this period of time to get to some answers. I also want to go as far as to say people need to remember when they're listening to these podcasts that, that I'm not working on this case. Yes. And I am just giving my views and opinions in relation to them. It's not legal advice, so um, not that I think that people would take it that way, but it's important that people understand that we're just trying to give some context to yes. the information that we're getting. Um, but keep those kept questions coming, they're great. Right. Just um, while we're on that first question, Damien, um, just quickly explain the um, disclosure um, 
parameters around a, a, a murder trial, what, what both sides have to do, disclose to each other, um, it, and the rules surrounding that. Um, I, I would say this, Tim, it, it's not specific to a murder trial. I mm. think that it's, yeah, yeah. it would mm. be specific to um, a, a criminal trial. Um, and if you, you can think about that quite logically, that the prosecution or a person has made an allegation um, that someone has done something and the person who's been accused of something has to answer that charge theoretically they have to get up and say well I either did that or I didn't do that and if yep. I did if you did if I say that I didn't do that you have to prove the prosecution have to prove that, that that's done and then the defense then have a right to say well how do you propose to prove that and that's the disclosure that Tim's talking about that's the information um, that, that they're going to rely on or the witnesses they're going to rely on and they have the prosecution has an obligation to provide that to um, the defence in, in a defined time generally um, in, in some lower level matters there's not a requirement for disclosure but anything of a significant matter there will be a requirement of disclosure the defence is not obliged to disclose anything to um, mm. the prosecution um, at all. I mean, there's some alibi witness um, requirements. So if um, it was said that I stole a bike on Thursday afternoon from the grocery store and I was going to say that I wasn't at the grocery store, I was in fact at the library, mm -hmm. then I would need to provide that informa information up front to the, um, to the prosecution so they could test that evidence before right. it got to court. Yeah, which is interesting because I, I've been asked a lot um, oh well, you know what? Are, what is Mr. Edwards's lawyers going to do to prove, um, you know, prove that he didn't do it? Um, and it, people sometimes find it quite difficult to yes. get their heads around the fact that he doesn't have to. He, he can sit there. He can literally sit there for six months and say, and and, and his lawyers don't have to do anything yes. um, proactively to um, to disprove the allegations against him. It's all on the one side, and that disclosure thing goes to that that the prosecution have got to basically lay all their cards on the table way ahead of time so Mr Edwards gets a, a fair trial in terms of knowing exactly what he's got to defend himself against but um, the other side don't have to show their cards at all. So Tim a lot of people would be aware of what I'm about to say but there'll be probably a lot of people that are not aware it could be the case quite simply that Mr Edwards doesn't give evidence. No. That's right. And, and, I mean, that would be quite shocking to some people to think that mm. this is a case where this man's not going to have to say anything at all. Yep. Um, and if the prosecution haven't met their threshold, why would you call him? That's right. He's not obliged to. Yeah, and that's the question that basically I, I've had the most over the four weeks. Oh, when's he going to give evidence? I say, well, he might not. Because and, and then And they, they go, why? And I say, well, he doesn't have to. That's right. Um, and, you know, the practical... Uh, you know, um, conclusion of if he did is that you are going to get one of the best barristers in the country asking you very, very difficult questions for very a very long questions. time. For a very long time, <laughs> I mean, you know, it's not, it's not going to. It wouldn't that cross examination um, would not be an hour or two. Um, it would probably be a week or two. I think <laughs> if it, uh, yeah, and that's probably Mark. at the low end. Yeah. Um, okay, the next question is from Sarah Keeble, and she has asked. If Mr Edwards is found to be guilty, will he be asked where Sarah Spears is? Oh, this is a great question, Sarah. Thanks for sending that in. Um, the, there's some relatively new legislation in Western Australia that's, that's come into play. And essentially, the, the, the context of the legislation is nobody, no parole. Mm. Um, so 
if he is convicted of that charge, as I understand it, he'll be given an opportunity to advise of the location of um, the body. Um, and if he doesn't provide the details, he he'll, won't be made eligible for parole um, for the duration of his natural life. So hopefully that helps, uh, uh, gives you a little bit of insight, Sarah, into where that might end up. Mm. Yeah. Okay, um, from Michelle, and I'm going to apologise for the pronunciation of the surname. What do you think, Tim? Grigorovich. Grigorovich, or, yeah. Michelle, thank you. Um, <laughs> so she has the question, will the accused be cross-examined in this trial? And if so, when is that to be expected? But of course, you've actually just answered that there is no expectation for the accused to defend himself whatsoever. No, that's right. But I think that um, since Michelle's asked the question, and even though that we've addressed it briefly um, previously, uh, what's really important to say about that is that if he does give evidence, you can almost guarantee he will be cross-examined extensively. Mm. Mm. Um, but also, one thing, a point that um, is worth mentioning in relation to that is if he chooses not to give evidence, no adverse inference can be drawn from mm. that. Yeah, yes. That's a good point. So, um, so in answer to that, Michelle... Uh, only time will tell. Only time will tell whether that um, whether he'll be cross-examined. Yeah. yeah. So that 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 basically, Damien, means the judge cannot um, think of him negatively yeah. for um, not wanting to give, you know, whatever evidence he he he, he had. The, the judge has to remain completely neutral and not draw, um, you know, think back things of Mr. Edwards because, because he, he chooses didn't. his right to silence. Yeah. Uh, David Lee has asked us, in relation to not being able to try Edwards again if he is acquitted, then later find Sarah Spears' body with all sorts of evidence on her. Should they drop the charges for Sarah's murder and just continue with the charges for Jane and Kira? And he's written after that bit of an insurance policy. Well, that's a good question, uh, David, especially on the back of the um, the conversation that we had the other day about um, what would potentially happen if... Um, he was he was acquitted. Mr. Edwards was acquitted of um, the murders, and then uh, the body was found, another body was found later. Um, in relation to this, I think that it's it's a bit uh, of a longbow to draw to to catch it in the terms of an insurance policy. But I think the listeners would understand what that means. And essentially, it's a it, it's a matter for the DPP at this stage. It's it's obviously they've got all the information before them, and um, that that will be decided in accordance with what the DPP prosecution guidelines are. Um, the state is always at liberty to um, discontinue a charge if they mm. see fit, but it's a matter for them. So, uh, good question, David. But it's just pro likely it's not something we can really answer to, to definitively from this position. Yeah, and of course it's tricky at the moment because you know it's all hypothetical at this stage as well, isn't it? You know, should this happen and should that happen, then what would happen? Tamara Cowan has asked. Well, she actually says she has a burning question for many years that she hopes that um, you can answer. If this public servant, Lance Williams, who was the main suspect in the centre of the Macro Police Task Force for so many years, could the police not have eliminated him right from the beginning by comparing his DNA to the DNA found under Kira Glennon's fingernails? Um, yeah, timing there. So um, what, we, what we found out during the the course of the trial so far is that um that it that um dna under kira's 
fingernails wasn't discovered until way down the track um, in the investigation. And um, from memory, I think that Mr. Edwards, um, Mr. Williams had been ruled out um, as a suspect by the time that DNA was basically found to be under Kira's fingernails Mm -hmm. and it matched other um, evidence as, as we've sort of discussed quite fully over the course of the podcasts um what could have happened if that hadn't happened was when when that dna was positively identified they could have then gone back to mr williams and ruled him out um categorically because mm. we now know or, we, or, or the, the allegation is that um that dna sample matches a completely different person um being mr edwards um, so, I mean, it's it's a great idea. Um, I hope Tamara's got some sort of investigative uh, role wherever she may be, because um, that, that's that's the way that good investigators think. Um, but as, as I say, I think the timings um, had it, it played out that um, uh, Lance had been ruled out by the time that DNA yeah. um, had been positively identified. And I think that sort of answers her the second part of her question, which is she asks, did police know early on in the investigation that the DNA found on the Karakata rape victim matched the DNA found under the fingernails of Kira Glennon? But again... Yeah, that, so that's timing from memory. Um, I think it was around 2009 when that that match was made but um and, and then and then it, the, the investigation continued for many more years obviously before the kimono was brought out of storage and 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 all the pieces um came together um towards towards the arrest and the charges tim just on the topic of dna people love dna this yeah millions of tv programs made about <laughs> dna because people are obsessed with it yes um in my experience tim have you ever seen a dna report uh, briefly, um, and it was it was like it was well, it was another language basically. Um, I, I, I I did have a look at one um, uh, briefly, but one of your colleagues and uh, legal colleagues, and um, yeah, I I did not envy them at all having to make head nor tail of it. Well, it's just for the listeners, um, it, it's a relatively new concept for me to reading DNA reports, but since I've started reading them, what I've discovered is they say things like the suspect is 100,000 times less likely to be this person. So, and this is not to do with this um, this specific uh, set of circumstances that Tamara's asked about, but I think that it's important for listeners to understand that when DNA reports are provided, they're not always that helpful. Sometimes no. they're so open-ended about what, the, what the, the DNA actually means that they're not necessarily that helpful. So... Mm. Um, with the, with the DNA that was uh, found under Kiara's fingernails, potentially, I haven't seen the report, but potentially that report might have come back and said in relation to, and I understand there wasn't anything said about Mr Williams, but potentially might have said something like, um, Mr Williams is 100,000 times likely to be the person whose DNA... So it doesn't actually no. pinpoint him down. No, it can never... It, they, they never say 100%. They all... As, as, Damien says they they always give this sort of massive figure and um, in Miss Barbara Gallo's opening um, she mentioned the figure of of Mr Edwards being 80 million times more likely to be the depositor of that DNA than anyone else or any other male so that's the odds 
that they're saying, but that doesn't eighty million to one is they're long odds. So, so it's Tim, not guaranteed, is it? It's, it's not guaranteed. So what would be really interesting for the listeners to think right now is is put yourself in the position of a person making a legal decision about whether this person was guilty or not, and then say something like this person is eighty thousand times more likely to be a contributor if now. Does that get you beyond a reasonable doubt yes. and take into all the other legal concepts, innocent until proven guilty, all those? It becomes an extremely difficult piece of evidence to, to, to measure in. Mm. Yeah, it's very complex. And, and this is why forensic scientists are great mathematicians. Yeah, and, um, and, this, and this DNA portion of the trial is going to be, I mean, there's, there's going to be three layers to it. There's going to be the actual DNA evidence itself. There's going to be the, the issue of about possible contamination and then on top of that we've got um, the, the the personality around the DNA of Mr. Laurie Webb who was at Pathwest at the time who d- departed his position at Pathwest, a very senior position at Pathwest under a cloud yeah. and, and, and he was a very important part of the handling particularly of that crucial fingernail evidence when it went over to, to America um, and went to the FBI. So that's that's all to come. And it, it, I mean, it is fascinating. It's going to be complicated, but it is. It, it's it, yeah. It is a fascinating subject um, uh, for um, criminologists and journalists yeah. and lawyers and 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 you, you know your man on the street. Uh, I suggest anyone who you know. I, I'm I'm thinking that our listeners are probably uh, keen CSI viewers as well by the sounds of their questions. Uh, Gemma Guilford has a question that popped up from the last day of the trial um, and she is wondering if a possible explanation for the two different cars that Kira was seen getting into could be that she initially went to get into the Ford but for some reason changed her mind, got out and kept walking to then get into the Commodore. Would this be possible in terms of timing, witness evidence and where she was along Stirling Highway? Mm. So this is that conflicting evidence we heard yesterday about two types of cars that Kira was seen leaning over. Yeah, nice idea but um, the fact was that, I mean, they basically kept the Burger Boys to the end because they were the last persons to see Kira and mm. they were all, all also probably the most um, reliable witnesses or, or the, the witnesses that say they'd seen the most. And they saw, or they said, and that backed up what other witnesses had said, that there weren't that many cars on Stirling Highway at that time of night. Um, and this 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 white car was was quite distinctive to the other witnesses, um, and no one else had seen another car stop. If you see what I mean. Yeah. So, what we drew, or what, what I think the prosecution was trying to draw together with all those twelve sightings, was a, a general consensus, if you want, of what had happened. And I described it as an outlier, and I think I think that's what it was. And and the fact that this gentleman that was talking about Fords works with Fords and, and does work <laughs> with Fords, I got the impression that that memory might have just been skewed over the years, yeah. rather than him seeing possibly another car. But I mean, I mean, you know, once again, like DNA, I mean, we're, we're never going to know. Um, categorically because there is no vision even though the police That's desperately right. tried to set up a camera on Bayview Terrace to get vision of cars but I, I, I think what just, Justice Hall will do is, is is take a sort of general consensus and, and a median line through all that evidence to, to maybe come to a, 
some sort of conclusion. Yeah. One of the um, roles that, he, that he'll um, go through in that process too is making an assessment about what he thought the credibility of the witnesses mm. were. Yes. Yeah. You know, it might be, be the case they simply forgot or you know, they couldn't recall or um, what the case is. So that's something that um, it's just another one of the things that gets yes. added to his list of jobs to do <laughs> yeah, in, this, in this process. Yeah, and that, that's obviously usually what a jury's job is there to do and, um, and a jury is very every jury is instructed not just to take notes and and verbatim write down what the witness is saying but um, view them their body language the way they gave their evidence the, their confidence or lack of it while they were giving their evidence to to basically get a, a holistic picture of that witness and not just the words on the page you know from the transcript of what they said but how they said it um, and the way they said it yeah. yeah one of the things Tim and Nat that always amazes me about people who have the ability to do that is not only the factors that Tim's just raised there, but cr um, cross-testing in your own mind, not in the um, trial process, about whether what that person said matched up with what that person said, yeah. with what matched up with what that person said. So you might have one witness that gives one piece of evidence that you're thinking their credibility was quite good, they said some really relevant things, but it just doesn't match up with what four other people yes, said. Yeah. Yes. So it, it just keeps um, the, the list of things that the um, judge has to do just keeps piling up. One, one listener actually asked us how the judge keeps a track of that and whether, you know, there's some kind of U-Butte Excel spreadsheet where he can cross-reference everything. Well, it's likely that he, each judge would have their own personal techniques. Mm. I mean, I think lawyers have their own personal techniques. Journalists have their own personal techniques. You go to um, an educational um, place and they'll teach you um, some techniques about how you could do that. But um, I would have thought that this, the mind that's operating at the top of this trial is one of the most efficient mm. and powerful minds. So um, far better from me to try to even <laughs> imagine how he does it. How he does it. Uh, there's a second part to Gemma's question, which also relates to this um, discrepancy in evidence yesterday. One of the people who saw a car didn't see a Telstra logo on it. This is one of the mm. Burger Boys. Mm. Um, she's asking, is the lack of evidence of a Telstra Telecom logo on the car scene a real issue for the prosecution? For that one witness, um, well, I mean, it, it, it might well be. It just goes to um, Damien's point right yep. there about powers of recall and how reliable you thought the witness was. And as we discussed yesterday, his other detailed recall of the car that he saw, um, which I believe is going to become very relevant further down the track when we hear more evidence about the car that was Mr Edwards owned at the time and the police were somehow able to track down in, in Chidlow, which is, a, which is a hills community way out of Perth. They found the actual car. I think that evidence will become more important once he's heard about that car in particular mm. and the way he'll be able to cross-reference that. Um, and, there, I mean, you know, there have been so many sightings of cars that we've heard about over the last three weeks, some with you know, the Telstra Living Witness, some saw a Telstra logo, some didn't. Um, and so, as Damien just said again, it's, it's one of the thousands and thousands of jobs and decisions and, and you know, um, mental juggling acts that Justice Hall's going to have to um, do over the next few months and then when the trial's actually, and the evidence is finished, when he, once he's making his decision. Tim, one of the fantastic things about a lawyer like myself coming into the forum 
that um, you wonderful people work in is that I'm not um, required to present evidence when I'm <laughs> going to put something forward. So what I was going to say about what um, we were just discussing then is that there has been um, studies done which show that people, numerous studies, and I haven't got one to hand, um, that show that people simply forget things they just yeah. so and I think we discussed it earlier on in the um, the, 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 the season of the podcast Nat that um, one person says um, he arrived in a blue car and then someone who's not an opposing witness or he arrived in a red car now only one of those people is right so what you, we're talking about here is a witness who's otherwise pretty reliable mm. but we're talking about a, a Telstra logo tiny the dimensions are tiny detail mm. from um, 20 years ago mm. and, and, and that's yeah from 20 years ago so we're <laughs> not even talking about the colour of the car we're talking about a, 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 a yeah. side car notation so um, it, it's simply it, it's in answer to the question it's simply possibly not yeah. doesn't carry that much weight. And it mm. depends on just on what you happen to focus on at the time. You know, as we talked about, you know, maybe the female witnesses are looking at at what the the um, the person is wearing and the males are looking at the cars and, yeah. you know. And add on top of that, um, several libations earlier in the evening and a yes. very <laughs> nicely cooked burger and, you know. Yes. I, I, you know that's flippant, but that I mean that your list of priorities at that time of night, you know, might not be, um, you know, thinking that I got to take in every detail of this car because it might become crucial 23 years later. I mean, that's absolutely what what he wasn't thinking at the time. Tim, you'll have to excuse me. You have to help me out. And what is libation? Uh, it's a drink, <laughs> Damien, as you well know. <laughs> <laughs> no, idea. and I'm not being disingenuous. Um, we've got a question here from Karen Hughes, and I think I may have caused some confusion here for Karen, so we'll answer it anyway. Karen has asked, given the high-profile nature of the crimes, why is the case heard in district and not Supreme Court? Mm -hmm. And um, I think, Karen, originally I had been saying that Tim was calling in from the, from the district court, but Tim, you can explain yeah, very, that it was physically from the Supreme Court. Yeah, very quick answer yes. to that. Um, it's the district court building that it's been heard in physically, but it's a, it's a Supreme Court sitting. And the the only reason for that is that the district court building in Perth, that's where the biggest court that can hold a trial of this magnitude is situated on the seventh floor. And so, yeah, so that's what it was. So um, that was strictly correct that I was calling <laughs> in from the district court building. Um, but as one of the court um, staff kindly pointed out to me, um, that it's a Supreme Court matter, and so it was strictly speaking, I was calling for the Supreme Court as well. Um, so yes. I can be at two places at once, <laughs> and doing more than two things <laughs> at once as well. Um, we've had one uh, question just come through right now as we're speaking from Loretta Goldstraw, and she asks, "If this man did kill these beautiful women, what sort of punishment should he receive?" It's not for us to decide. <laughs> no, and I really didn't want to go there. <laughs> it's not, but how do people know when we're recording this podcast to actually I email in know. at the exact yeah. time? The answer to that question can be found in a person's own mind. That because the the question was, what should that punishment be? Mm. And my suggestion to listeners would be, it's a great question to ask yourself. In your mind, what is it that you think the punishment for this um, these crimes should be if... Um, this person was convicted of all these and then go to the Western Australian Sentencing Act 
mm-hmm. check the criminal code and see if you can find out. Because obviously, like you said, Nat, a lot of people are listening as CSI buffs and they're yep. interested in all of this stuff. You can go online and you can find the current acts which set out what the maximum penalties are for um, um, a- any crimes in Western Australia. And then you could test it against some of the sentencing prin- principles in the Sentencing Act. But unfortunately, uh, Tim, I'm, I'm going to sit out trying to Good. give an answer to that very, question. Very, very wise. <laughs> so the, the way I'll answer it now, just very briefly, yep. before Mr Edwards' trial started, Justice Hall sat um, on a sentencing of another very, very serious I mean, all murders are serious, but a, a particularly serious murder in Western Australia involving a man who'd um, killed uh, multiple members of his own family. Mm-hmm. Justice Hall, ha- in that case, and I stress in that case, handed down a life without parole, basically a, a, a whole life term, which is only the second time that's, that's ever been handed down in Western Australia. Not that I'm saying that that in any way relates to his sentencing exercise here, if that even uh, arises, because we don't know yet. Um, but all, all I would say is that Justice Hall, uh, um, in that case, handed down the most serious um, term that you can possibly hand down in Western Australia, and so he he has done that in the past. Um, and w- what, when the time comes, um, what that will be? I mean, only Justice Hall will know, and only Justice Hall should know. Um, and it is only up up to him. And mm. um, it, you know, speculation about what it might be is probably not helpful um, at this stage of the process. Yeah. Another difficulty that arises on those um, issues there, Tim, is that these crimes are alleged to have taken place a long time ago. Mm-hmm. The sentencing uh, provisions change all yep. the time. Yep. Um, and th- obviously, Justice Hall will be um, dealing with these matters if a conviction arises um, under the current regime. And um, that provision that you've just talked about is a, is a relatively... Well, as you said, it's the first time that it's ever been handed down in in Western Australia where parole's not um, available. So it's it, there's a lot of things to consider in relation to sentencing moving forward, if that's something that comes up. Yeah, but a long, long way to go before yeah. that. So, Loretto, we'll uh, leave that one with you and you can do some homework and digging for yourself on that one. Um, the last question is from Winand Visa. And Winand asks a general question. One of the most pertinent legal premises is that a person is presumed to be innocent until found criminally guilty beyond reasonable doubt. Why then must such a presumed innocent person be financially burdened with bond, bail or risk staying jailed until the case is finalised? How do these two legal tenants gel? Well, that's an expansive question. There's a lot of um, a lot of balls in play, if I could put it that way, Nat, in relation to that. There's a lot of considerations. Um, primarily, if I understand the way that question is um, set up, is it's about whether somebody gets bail or whether they, whether somebody doesn't get bail. Why they should be in jail if they're presumed innocent until proven guilty. So th- all of that is dealt with in the Bail Act. And when a judiciary or someone is making is, is giving consideration to whether somebody gets bail, I'm not talking about this case specifically, mm. there's numerous considerations. Um, and, and what was really well raised by Wynette in that question is um, when... 
why then must such a presumed innocent person be financially burdened with bond, bail or risk staying jailed until the case is finished? Um, a balance against that is, considering the seriousness of somebody's alleged offence, why then should the community be exposed to the risk of them doing something else? I mean, you, yep. you can just see how many questions could be raised that a magistrate or a judge um, has to consider when considering those um, that, that those factors, but it's a great question because, as a defence lawyer, that's the question I'm constantly yes. asking: Why should this person, if they're presumed innocent, be held in custody? Um, I think it's really important to to raise that it's a different premise for murder, for a yes. charge of murder. There's a, it's a different premise, but the way that that question was um, canvassed, I think that there was a general, general element to it. Yeah, and murder, as Debbie says, is that's a sort of charge on its own, and so bail in that. In, in murder cases it is treated differently for instance um, on on the vast amount of criminal charges in Western Australia you can get bail by a magistrate but in murder only a Supreme Court judge the highest jurist in the state can, can grant bail on a murder charge they're rare they do happen that um, they are rare um, and um, as Damien said it's a balancing act uh, it's a balancing exercise um, the, the liberty of one person who is presumed innocent right up against risk to the community of them being in the community and and the seriousness of the charges do weigh um, quite heavily on 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 um, judges when they and magistrates when they when they make in fact it's basically the the, the top of the wazza the you know the, the very first and very last thing that they consider is 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 risk versus liberty and and I mean, in this case, Mr. Edwards never did apply for bail, um, um, and it would have been a, it would have been a, in my opinion, it would have been a hell of a hell of a task to try and get him bail, um, given given the length of time that um, he had been in the community um, after he's alleged to have committed the crimes. Tim, in WA, bail for murder is only available in exceptional circumstances, yeah. um, that, and that's despite the presumption of innocence. Um, it, the allegations. You know, said to be so serious that it, it's not in the public interest, um, but it is in the public interest to ensure that the trial is protected and and the people of the community are protected. Yeah, as well. and the um, yeah. and the time to trial as well. That's that's also ta- taken into account and was taken into account by Justice Hall when he delayed the trial. We've discussed when he it was due to start in June and July, and then he put, had to put it back to November because of that evidence, um, that new evidence that came up, and that was. At very at the very forefront of his mind then was well, Mr. Edwards has already been in custody nearly two and a half years, which is an exceptionally long time to trial anyway. If I push mm. it back further, um, but on that balancing act, he decided, yeah, I will let in the new evidence. I'll draw the line in the sand and I will set a new date. But that date was pretty much set in stone, um, and uh, that was pretty much the date that um, that we started. Well, thank you very much, both of you, for those um, very elaborate answers. And listeners, we hope that that's cleared up some of your questions and, and thoughts on the case. And thank you for the feedback. We appreciate it. We'll still be checking emails over that Christmas break. So you can contact us on Podcasts at wanews.com.au As we've said, the trial resumes Monday the 6th of January. We'll be back then with daily podcasts. In the meantime, stay tuned for any bonus episodes that we'll be dropping in and we'll chat to you all in the new year. This podcast was hosted by Natalie Bongiolo, produced by Kate Ryan and Alicia Preedy and recorded in the studios of Seven West Media. Audio files were provided from the archives of the Seven Network and the West Australian. 
Sign up for daily emails and all the latest on the Claremont trial at thewest.com.au.